Hello, everyone, and welcome to this ESIP online conversation about education, knowledge, and human capital. My name is Frederick Erickson, and I'm very pleased to welcome today two guests for this conversation, Jason Brennan and Milis Kitzing, two very interesting scholars who many of you will already have come across through the books and papers. Jason is Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at the McDonald's School of Business at Georgetown University, and he's the author of best-selling and thought-provocative books like Cracks in the Ivory Tower and Against Democracy. Milis Kitzing is professor and rector at the Estonian Business School, and his latest book is The Political Economy of Digital Ecosystems. Jason and Milis, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's... um get started and talking a little bit about human capital and education and basically this the state of play in the world of higher education today. So we're going to cover several aspects of our current system for higher education in American Europe. Um, and we're going to get into issues around business school education that you both have been writing about recently. You are collaborating uh, together with others for a book, which is going to come out later this year. So we should all watch out for the publication of that book. But I wanted us to start with the role of education in today's economy and the role of education more generally. I think a common proposition among a lot of people is that the economy gets more dependent on knowledge and human capital, and therefore it is motivated that a larger share of our spending goes to higher education. Going to university and perhaps graduate school will equip you with the knowledge that is required to get a decent paying job in the first place and to have a thriving career, if not for the rest of your life, so at least for uh, a decade or so. But it will also give you something else, knowledge and the ability to make morally justified decisions about your life, moral decisions that are going to affect others. You become, in a way, a member of the Enlightenment Project. Now, Jason, you've written critically about higher education in your book, Cracks in the Ivory Tower. What is wrong with the proposition I just outlined? Uh, What's wrong with it is it doesn't seem to be verified by the empirical evidence that we have. So the real question is, why is it that people are making more money when they graduate from school? And our evidence seems to be overwhelmingly, it's because getting a degree signals to people that you have a combination of three desirable traits. You are smart slash intelligent, you are perseverant, and you are a conformist. You do what society expects. And so uh, a good way to illustrate this is to think about the ritual that's common in much of the West of when you get engaged, you offer someone a useless but expensive trinket as a signal of your engagement. The uselessness and expense of it is part of it because it's a way of saying, I love you so much, I'm willing to spend two months salary on this useless trinket. And that proves to myself and to you that I'm concerned, I love you, and that I also have some financial means. Education looks a lot like that. There are lots of reasons to think this, which we'll get into, but the sort of short summary is if someone, say, fails out of college a semester before they're uh, about to graduate, they get no salary premium. It's as if they didn't go to school at all. Whereas if they were building human capital, you'd expect that, say, They've built seven-eighths of the human capital by now, and they'll get a wage premium, but they don't. But the deeper reasons include things like when we try to measure how much people learn, we find overwhelmingly they don't learn very much in terms of actual facts or theories. What they do learn, they mostly forget within a few months of graduating or a few months of taking the class. They don't seem to develop most of their soft skills. Overwhelmingly, they don't. And um, further, there's this problem called transfer of learning, which is the idea that if I develop a skill, say, in analyzing a, a sonnet, then I can then use that to write other kinds of things. And it turns out that the evidence overwhelmingly indicates that transfer of learning doesn't take place. So I think I would estimate that while people do build human capital in colleges, uh, well, some people do, uh, overwhelmingly, the value of college is about proving to other people that you're the right kind of person, which means that it's very much a sort of expensive signaling competition, uh, not actually an investment in developing people. So the the value of the university education is then it's the diploma. Um, Basically, you can show that, well, look, I went to Georgetown University, and therefore I'm part of this gilded cast of people who, uh, in the first place, can get in. And while there, I managed to build a network with other alumni, uh, which I can use for sort of professional purposes later in life. And I have a sort of connection to professors and others that can perhaps help me with getting my foot into a door somewhere. So is, is that the type of values that you see being generated by by sort of spending all this money into for for getting a university degree 
Yeah, absolutely. In effect, um, I, I often like to joke that even though universities have a tendency to have be filled with people with very left-wing politics, left compared to whatever country they're in, I tend to think of universities as being among the most right-wing institutions in any given country, because what they mostly do is create a barrier for access to the highest level positions in government and in, biz in industry, uh, and then they screen out who can participate, and the screening mechanism involves things like having the right kind of social network, having the right kind of mathematical and intellectual skills, and so on, but we just don't have very much evidence that they're developing those skills, right? So if, if we had evidence that when you go to college, typically as a result, you will become a better writer, you will become more intelligent, you will be better at mathematics, then we might think this is something that's worthy of public and private investment because we are creating an infrastructure that improves the economy and lifts all boats. But the really our evidence is more that people don't learn very much. And it's actually a redistributional mechanism where because we have college or universities as a barrier to entry into the highest level positions, those positions make more money, positions beneath them make less money. So overall, it's a redistribution upward towards the upper middle class at the expense of the lower classes. I'm going to come to you, Milis, very soon, but two more questions for you, Jason, just to follow up on what you were just saying. So first question is, are the differences between what type of education people are taking? So if, for instance, if you take a degree in science, is that different from people taking a degree, for instance, in humanities or in social sciences in the sense that uh, the knowledge that they learn will stay with them in the sense that you build up actually a stock of knowledge that can be useful later? Or are you seeing similar problems across the disciplines? I don't want to say that all the disciplines are exactly equal. Um, some are better than others. So a lot of that is a selection effect, meaning that the kind of person who chooses to major in physics is usually a, a different kind of person, the kind of person, say, chooses to study communications. They're often more conscientious, more intelligent, and so on. And so when we measure this stuff, we have to disambiguate selection effects from who chooses these things. But actually, even when we look at uh, the hard sciences like physics and chemistry, the results are quite depressing. If people don't continue to work in those fields, they forget almost everything that they know, like, including me as an example. Just anecdotally, I was a chemistry major for, as an undergraduate for three years, and I remember almost nothing. Uh, you know, Even though if you knew me at age 20, I could synthesize drugs in a laboratory that would be safe enough for you to take, and now I don't remember anything. But even when we try to measure things like, do people who say major in physics or chemistry, who have an IQ of 135 or higher, are they able to apply scientific reasoning outside the narrow domain in which they used it? The tests that we've given that other experimenters have given them basically say no, they can't do even basic scientific reasoning. Their knowledge is highly particularized and it tends to fade over time. So yeah, I would say I would expect that, you know, on average, a physics major is sort of a better bet than say a communications major, but really it doesn't look like college is doing much for them. All right. What about the, that other part of the highly romanticized version of um, why you should go to university that I started off with, which is basically, it's not just that you get a, a professional education. It's not sort of a, an improvement of your cognitive capacities to apply your knowledge to new circumstances. But the basic proposition is that you're going to become a better person. You're going to make morally better decisions as a consequence of acquiring not just knowledge, but biology of knowledge. Um, what do you say about that? Again, we, we don't have evidence that that's the case. Uh, it is true that the average graduate of a college, any kind of university, if you measure things like how conscientious they are, how happy their marriages are, how much money they give to charity, and even if you control for things like background income and so on, you get that they're slightly better. But again, this appears to be a selection effect because in order to be the kind of person who gets into a university in the first place, and further, to be the kind of person who has the wherewithal to finish, that selects for people that are already perseverant and conscientious, and those people tend to be morally better. Insofar as people have tried to test, do taking certain classes, or like, for instance, uh, like, you know, I've, I, my background's philosophy and moral philosophy, it's mostly what I do, and do taking classes in moral philosophy, does that make you a better person? The evidence is no. Uh, in fact, so if someone can Google, for instance, Eric Schwitzgebel uh, and one of the University of California schools, I forget which one is it, Davis, or, but uh, he's done a lot of experiments on this. And it turns out that uh, people who say 
take a lot of classes in moral philosophy, which are supposed to teach you how to become better at moral reasoning, what they end up doing is becoming much more judgmental of things. Oh, that's bad, and that's wrong, and that's good. But their behavior ends up being the same as everybody else's. So if anything, it's made them morally worse. Because you know, if I now believe that it's wrong to eat meat, and I understand why, but I keep doing it, I'm a worse person that hasn't, than the person who hasn't even realized what's wrong about it. So if anything, I think you can make an argument that a lot of, say, moral training that we give people in school corrupts them because their behavior doesn't get better, but their beliefs about what their behavior should be get more advanced. And so therefore, the gap between what they know they should do and what they do is higher. All right. Very interesting. Milis, um, I mean, what's, what's your comment on, on this view of um, sort of the, the role of education and what, what you can accomplish with, uh, with education? I suppose that's not a perfect sales pitch for um, going into the Estonian business school. All right. Uh, thanks so much. Um, um, so, I mean, uh, first on, on, on the signaling, I mean, obviously the signaling doesn't only concern um, uh, higher education. I mean, I, I think in a way, uh, at least w where I'm based at, we also have a lot of very good elite, so-called so elite high schools. And uh, you see the uh, same thing, that uh, they highly sort of um, are involved in the signaling game. And the question often is that... Uh, um, are they actually sort of contributing um, to the knowledge, uh, human capital of the people, or, or are they simply sort of selecting the right people? And uh, that's that's obviously something that happens in education in general on a number of sort of levels, not just in higher education. Um, obviously, there is uh, something to be said. Uh, what you, uh, Frederick, also sort of tried to point out, uh, you know, simply you know, learning for the learning sake, you know, taking some time off and reflecting and. Uh, and of course, the question there is that in what form or uh, how how is it uh, you know uh, best to do it? But but in general, I think um, um, you know if you sort of think in a sort of very ideal world about the um, role of higher education and uh, universities, uh, uh, then um, you know the mission should be discovery, improvement, and uh, dissemination of knowledge. I mean, I, I think the point is that they often are not necessarily you know very good at that. You know, in many ways, if I think about sort of ideal university, I think the role of it uh, should be, you know, as this sort of um, old slogan from uh, Nokia was uh, connecting people, you know, in order to disseminate knowledge uh, or improve the knowledge, you need to connect lots of different people, different people in the ecosystem, different scholars from different disciplines, students and scholars, uh, entrepreneurs and scholars, policymakers and scholars, people from different cultures. Uh, and so on. And uh, I think this is something that uh, is not often happening uh, in the modern university. I mean, often we see sort of a disconnect, uh, have sort of you know, sometimes of academic superiority vis-a-vis -vis other disciplines. Uh, you have a um, sort of, um, you know, maybe disconnect between what universities do and what sometimes uh, entrepreneurs actually want them to do. You know, academics say that, well, we're doing all this wonderful research that entrepreneurs could use, but uh, entrepreneurs say that, well, that universities don't do actually things that uh, we want them to do. And of course, if you add to this um, all kind of other factors where um, uh, you have a tendency, uh, increasing sort of tendency to um, not to consider certain social views or worldviews or sort of narrow down uh, the debates and so on, and um, I think in many ways, what I also have experienced um, uh, myself is that, um, yes, we learn from, you know, free market scholars like Adam Smith that uh, specialization is good and people should specialize. Uh, often at the universities, I've seen, especially in the large universities, I've seen that specialization has uh, gone into extreme. Uh, it a little bit uh, starts to remo remind this uh, debates uh, that were going on uh, over car manufacturing some 40, 50 years ago, where, you know, the car manufacturers in Detroit were sort of very highly specialized, where people just did the same same thing uh, all the time. And then uh, Japanese came uh, with a little bit more modern uh, management methods where they actually allowed workers uh, doing different tasks and jobs to you know understand the entire process and sometimes when you when you look at uh, some of the academic departments you see that they have been increasingly narrow uh, they don't really understand that comprehensively um, you know, the entire process and uh, often the kind of role of university may also go missing there 
So how do we square this? I mean, it may it may just be my problem and not the problem of anyone else, but sort of the two different propositions I'm trying to bring together here is, on the first hand, we have an economy which gets more independent, sort of more dependent on knowledge, on human capital. And on the other hand, we have a higher education system, which isn't deliver, delivering what it should be delivering. And perhaps it's not you, you're not going to accomplish the things that you're you're being sold before going to university. So is the is the issue here that we may have oversimplified things when it comes to the role of human capital for the economy, the, you, the role of human capital for performance within the type of organizations that most people would go in and work in, whether that's going to be firms or other types of organizations. Um, a lot of the human capital that is going to be valuable from the viewpoint of job market performance is something that you acquire either before going into university in terms of characters, traits, or it's going to be highly specified type of knowledge that you mostly going to develop on the job while you're there. Is that is that the, the, the way to think about it? Elise? If I can continue here, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think um, this is uh, certainly the case. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, we shouldn't expect that uh, all contributions to human capital uh, come from the uh, universities. But um, I think we have still this sort of very kind of um, linear or um, traditional old kind of industrial thinking about the role of universities that you you tend to think that uh, you know you graduate from high school and then you go to university and uh, and you study there for four years or maybe a bit longer, uh, five years or uh, three years depending on the educational system and then you end up with a job and then uh, you work in this job and at some point you retire and maybe that was case uh, in some places a long time ago but uh, I think um, today's um, uh, today's situation people may have very different jobs and very different careers and. Um, again, like depending on the context, for some people it might make make sense to go to university after um, after high school. For others, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you can basically sort of uh, learn throughout uh, throughout your life. You know, the sort of I think the emphasis on the lifelong learning that uh, this is really the key here. Um, and uh, again, we have to kind of recognize that uh, universities are just like one player in this broader uh, environment. Uh, uh, you know, some jobs are better learned, uh, um, you know, kind of on the job or uh, there is a, low, a huge role for tacit knowledge uh, in addition to the sort of more uh, formal, uh, formal knowledge. So this, I think this sort of diversity really is, is uh, needs to be understood. And uh, universities also have to be much more sort of diverse in that sense that you need a different ways uh, for learning, different uh, approaches to learning, depending on, uh, you know, on the discipline and depending on also on the students, uh, learners uh, in the broader sense. Would you agree, Jason? I mean, the basic proposition here is that we have oversimplified the value of human capital um, and perhaps we have a poor perception about what is human capital and what type of human capital that gets useful in our working life. In a way, I think, you know, human capital is an important thing and it's human capital in the context of institutions, including managerial environments, which make use of that human capital. And that is very important. And I think universities actually are very good at, at telling you who has that human capital and who is a good worker. So when I criticize, the, the funny thing about this is when I criticize the sort of uselessness of what happens at a university, uh, the uselessness is sort of the point. So in the same way that when it comes to proposing to someone, the fact that it's a useless trinket matters. The fact that they're giving you, they were like, I spend $6,000 on this thing that has no use. I didn't buy, it's not a down payment on a house. It's not an automobile. It's not stock options. The fact that it's useless is very strong evidence. I really care about you because I don't get any external benefit from this. And it's also evidence to myself that I care. So similarly with universities that the fact that you spend a lot of time studying esoteric knowledge, forgetting that knowledge, going through hoop jumping, proving to, uh, you know, following orders from others, et cetera. That's very strong evidence that you have what it takes 
And that means that when I hire you, I know you're the kind of person who will follow orders. You're smart. You're perseverant. You'll do you're diligent and hardworking. You can think into the future and delay gratification. And then I can teach you what you need to know on the job. And that's why, for instance, uh, when I worked at my former employer, uh, Brown University, so many of their engineering students would be hired by Wall Street to do finance. They didn't know anything about finance, but the finance people at, in Wall Street would say, we can teach you that in six weeks. We know you have what it takes. So I think universities work in the sense of it's, a, it's an effective screening mechanism to tell potential employers who has human capital, who has the right kind of skills and social, like not just mental and cognitive skills, but social skills. Um, however, we're just not doing very much to develop those skills. And, when, and part of the story here is if that's the case and it's inefficient because it takes so long, well, the taking so long to do it and having it be expensive is just as it is with engagement rings. It's part of the point of the system to make it work. Um, that's one reason why it's so hard to find substitutes. Because I could say, for instance, take an IQ test and show, look, this is proof that I'm intelligent. And oh, and you wanted to know that I'm perseverant. I spent the last six years making the world's largest rubber band ball. Look how perseverant I am. And you want to know I'm a conformist. You know, look, I do everything my friends do. Haha, I'm a conform. It wouldn't work, right? You need to like have the combination of those things. You need to not look weird. So that's what universities are doing. It's, it's sort of a social proof of who you are, um, but it's not really developing you very much. And, and Jason, has this changed over time? I mean, if I were going to talk to my old parents and sort of when they went to university a long time ago, comparing my own experience and comparing with younger people now, I at least get the sense that there has been a change. Uh, which is partly driven by the fact that the, the the sort of the share of a young population that attends university or college today is so much higher than it was 40, 50, 60 years ago. Um, and, and if it has changed, is, is that because of the university or is it because of demands uh, in, 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 in working life and demands from organizations or changes in the economy, which has prompted organizations to ask different people about the different questions about the people they're going to hire? I think we have very little evidence that people were really learning more back in the past, with the exception of we have some data about how much people used to study, how many, and students would spend more time studying in the past than they do now. But even then, um, some of that's confounded by things such as, say, the average student at an Ivy League university in the United States is simply much more intelligent than the average student was 50 years ago. So if we gave them the same level of material, we should expect them to study less because it should be easier for them. They're smarter. But I think what's really going on is that because so many people are entering universities, that the primary function of a university is to signal that you're better than other people on certain measures. When everyone is getting a, a bachelor's degree or equivalent, then now in order for you to show that you're better than others, you need to get a master's degree or you need to get a PhD. And you know you have the problem, say, in Germany, where so many people who are getting PhDs are getting it for like clearly for signaling methods, not because they care about doing research. You know, I remember, like anecdotally, I could I know people are like 19 out of 20 of my uh, of my PhD students intend to go work at BMW and they have no intention of doing research ever again. So I think that's what's happening is where it's everyone is doing more and more signaling because we're in an arms race for signaling. But I really don't think that back in the day in say the 1960s, the typically university student was learning a lot more or developing their human capital much more. Um, I think they were engaged in signaling, but because so many fewer people were doing it, the sort of, so the benefit to yourself of that signaling was higher. All right. And immediately, I mean, I've been thinking about the case of Estonia here. I mean, you've done a magnificent change in, in your educational, social, and economic structure over the past 30 years. So, I mean, when I sort of got to know Estonia quite intimately in the beginning of the 1990s, I came across a lot of Estonians who had um, been abroad, um, getting educations abroad, and then they were returning to Estonia in order to help sort of a newly independent country to build up itself and to create well-functioning institutions. But but generally, uh, the, the human capital in the country was pretty poor. Now, human capital is pretty strong. Uh, and you can see that mostly when you measure intensity of knowledge or intensity of human capital in in the economy. What, what what's the story behind this development, and why, where do, where do universities come into it? Yes, uh, I think in in general, if you look at the Estonian uh, educational system, and let's st- uh, start with sort of uh, secondary education, then you see that. Um, actually, if you use PISA, PISA scores as a measure, we're actually doing like really well. Uh, yeah, you know, in, in the top of the world and also in top of the Europe. Uh, it used to be that Finland used to be better than us, but actually now 
uh, we are we're doing uh, doing uh, better. An interesting thing there is that we're doing we have been doing it like with really minimalist uh, re, um, resources, and uh, um, in many ways, I think um, you know the, it's it's very difficult to change educational system, and I think that our educational system you know still has quite a lot of sort of traditional ways how to do things, and obviously there also have have been uh, improvements. So. It's, it's 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 difficult to make the argument that it has been because of uh, changes that have been because all the all the modernization that has happened in the in the last thirty years you know after the collapse of the Soviet Union so there's still I think certain uh, certain legacies there and uh, obviously uh, as far as universities are are concerned um, there have been also lots of improvements I mean I I started my under, undergraduate degree in 1991 exactly when uh, you know Estonia became independent. And that was a completely different story. You know, if you, if you look at the resources that universities had, uh, what they you know used to teach, uh, basically there was a lack of um, knowledge about uh, modern economics or political science or you know many other disciplines. You know, while probably you know the the, the knowledge about certain sort of technical subjects were certainly um, in in a better better shape. So in that sense, I think the universities really have gone through a tremendous uh, transition and uh, as they have sort of uh, modernized. Um, I think that a big difference, you know, Jason is talking a lot about signaling uh, United States. Uh, um, I think the big difference is, 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 is uh, who's paying for it and uh, the cost. I mean, actually, you know, if you sort of look at the cost here, even, even, even from my perspective, um, you know, being at a private uh, university, um, the costs here are uh, uh, very small in comparison with uh, the United States. The difference is at least sort of 10 times, even if you uh, charge tuition. But the story is that uh, most universities, at least from the um, Estonian uh, population and uh, Estonian language um, uh, teaching, um, have not been uh, uh, charging uh, tuition. It has been subsidized by the government. And of course, interesting sort of question there is that uh, has it actually sort of um, helped in terms of um, you know better access to um, uh, higher education and uh, some of the research that I have seen and read uh, done about Estonia basically argues that you know people still you know coming from the poorer backgrounds and uh, they you know even if you have you know tuition free uh, education you don't have to pay tuition for the education still people in the poorer uh, backgrounds are are less likely to enroll uh, at the university because there are still a lot of costs involved and uh, and other factors that affect their behavior and at the same time you would have sort of thought that, well, if I can study business administration or management or entrepreneurship at the public university for free, that would have put a private university such as um, uh, Estonian Business School out of business. Um, actually, it didn't happen either. So there are still, um, you know, you could sort of basically say sort of alternative costs, uh, you know, um, opportunity costs. Uh, people are willing to pay certain money uh, for tuition in in, in, in in order to get degree or to you know, simply to build a business community or uh, networks um, in comparison for doing it without the tuition and on the basis of some other uh, conditions. So those are sort of interesting, uh, I think, sort of interesting developments that also have happened here in terms of some of the uh, changes taking place uh, uh, in the educational uh, uh, environment. All right. So so let's talk a little bit more about university and what's the state of our universities are today. So there has been a vast expansion of higher education in the past 20 years in particular. And my experience is that while some universities have expanded, they've expanded with specialized graduate schools, etc., many of them haven't done much of uh, taking in a lot more new students Many of these universities have become much more research-focused and put in practice a system with little teaching for professors, meaning that students are not going to have that much connection with senior faculty. Meanwhile, universities have become more important institutions for issues about talos and logos and are increasingly becoming the final arbiters of truth in discussions in societies. And they charge good money for it. There's been a significant inflation in higher education, and it's often difficult to understand why students should fork out a fortune for the education services that they actually get at a university. 
So, Jason, if we look at universities as complex organizations with multiple and varied incentive structures, what incentive structures do you think are the most important ones and in what direction do they push universities? Yeah, great question. Uh, my book, Cracks in Every Tower, is all about the internal incentives that each of the players faces and what this predicts about their behavior. And effectively, it's arguing that universities in general have very bad business ethics, and this is explained by their perverse incentives. Without getting into all the details of that, uh, different players have different goals. And so I, as a faculty member, I, I do care about students. I do care about education and research for its own sake. But I'm part of a game where my prestige, my income is based upon how much I publish and where I publish. Uh, and so I always have an incentive to prioritize research over teaching. You know, and I tell my students about this, like just as an example, and this is true of many other universities that are what are called R1s in North America. When I get a raise at the end of the year, um, because I'm a full professor, 50% of my raise is determined by research. Everything else is the other 50%. When I was an assistant professor, it was higher for research. But the reality is, if I publish articles in top journals or publish with top books, I'll get a research bonus in the summer that's worth two-ninths of my salary. I'll get a course reduction. I'll get invited to give talks at other universities at five or $6,000 a pop, et cetera, et cetera. So research pays the bills. If you are an excellent researcher, you can expect in North America to make something like five to six times as much money as someone who's an excellent teacher but not a good researcher. That's where all the incentives are. The interesting thing is why students decide to go to universities that are filled with excellent researchers who haven't really been selected for by their teaching. And it's because it still it works for them. Even if the students don't learn anything, they still nevertheless get a big art return on their investment. Even at Georgetown, which is a very expensive university, if you pay the full sticker price to go here for four years, it's about $250,000. Unbelievably expensive. But nevertheless, despite that, our undergraduate business students have something like a 20 to 25% return on investment. But it's probably not because we're teaching them anything. It's probably because it's social proof that they have what it takes. Um, administrators inside of universities also have these kind of perverse incentives, which include increasing the expense. This is sort of one of the weird, like one of the weird things about being a dean. If you come into, say, a North American university and you raise hundreds of millions of dollars and spend that money on just whatever garbage, you know, rock climbing walls and fancy, fancy copper plated walls and just you know garbage that isn't necessary, uh, and then you also leave with a bunch of unfunded funded liabilities to your successor. Nevertheless, because you've spent all that money and raised all that money, when you go to apply for like the next job, you want to be go from a dean to being a university president at a better school then uh, the fact that you've raised this money is proof that you have what it takes to do fundraising and, well, uh, you get these better jobs. These are just a couple anecdotal things, but you see this kind of behavior throughout university systems. They have a perverse incentives to expand and increase. Even just things like if I'm a mid-level administrator, you know, a director of this or that, um, and I'm trying to get more prestige for myself, more money for myself, one of the easiest ways to do that is to expand the amount of stuff that my office does and the amount of people that work for me. I, get, as the manager, get the benefits of that. I can then go to the university president and demand more money and more funding and so on. Um, and then the costs are spread on to students and on to others. So all around, instead of universities, you have these weird collective action problems and perverse incentives, which lead to spending more and more money on marginal things that don't really have any value because the money can, expenses can be externalized onto others. This isn't just true at private universities, by the way. When we have public funded universities, sometimes people say, well, that solves the problem because now the students aren't paying for this. But no, instead you're spending, the money is being paid for by taxpayers and that's coming at the expense of every other thing the state could be doing. Instead of, so, you know, I often, that's one of the reasons I find universities so many like right wing because a lot of what they're doing is capturing money that could have been spent on say welfare for genuinely poor people and it ends up being welfare for upper middle class people i mean if you're left wing that should just make you cringe right but that's what they do indeed i mean there's this talk about um sort of higher education bubble almost sort of a having bubble characteristics if you think about it from a financial development or financial crisis point of view so you have this increase in cost, but there is little association between the increase in cost and quality of education. I mean, what you get is all the other extras in, in a sense that you get the university to organize your life in a different way. I mean, you have access to sort of swimming pools or basketball courts and uh, and other things that you, you you may want to have, but it's not really focused on what you're there for, which is to get an education and to in increase your knowledge. Are there other drivers uh, behind 
the cost inflation in, in higher education, uh, apart from sort of that internal cost pressure, which is that it's in the interest of uh, mostly sort of everyone in the university to increase cost because that's going to provide them with better opportunities in the future. What, what, what could the other cost increases be? I think there are two two big things that are explaining it. Partly is subsidization. Uh, so especially in North America, um, but actually just in Europe as well. Uh, so imagine... Imagine that uh, the government says we're upset that too many young people cannot afford, you know, small family sedans. And so what we'll do is now everyone gets a say 10,000 euro credit to buy a Honda Civic. Well, basic economics tells us that you'd expect Honda dealerships would just raise the price of the Civic, maybe not exactly 10,000 euros, but around that. And so by giving people money to buy Civics, and you, when that's widespread money going to everybody, that will just make the price increase and it'll become less affordable. Targeted subsidies such as food stamps to genuinely poor people don't have that big an effect on price. Those are probably justifiable, but a subsidy to everybody just raises the price. Now that's for a for-profit business. What about universities? Well, insofar as economists have studied this, what they find is that when you subsidize universities, they just increase their price. They just take the money the same way Honda dealerships do. So at the very least, if you're in favor of subsidies, you should also be in favor of uh, cost controls, telling universities in North America, the government will pay you know $20,000 a year for anyone to get who, under a certain income to get um, some sort of benefit towards tuition, but you're not allowed to charge more than this. Otherwise, they'll just capture the money and they'll spend it on various things. The second thing, which is kind of unavoidable, is Baumol's cost disease. So William Baumol, um, a very famous economist, argued that what often happens say, with opera is op the technology of delivering opera in a way has not become more efficient over time. It's just some person stands on a stage and sings in a way like it's, it's as expensive now as it was in the past. But in order to hire an opera singer, that person potentially could be doing anything else. They could be building a car. They could be a carpenter or anything else. So when other kinds of industries become more efficient, in order to continue to have someone in this less efficient industry, you still have to pay them more, even though they're not actually having a higher margin of product. And so you get this thing called the cost disease, which is that they're becoming less and less efficient, but nevertheless more and more expensive over time. Right. So that's happening with universities as well. For the most part, the technology of delivering education is not much more efficient than it was in the past. But in order to hire people as faculty members, administrators, and so on, you're competing with all the more efficient services. You know, Google needs a janitor, but they're efficient. Google needs information workers, but they're efficient. Google needs mid-level managers and secretaries, but they're more efficient. So some of this, and there's, there's good studies arguing that a large percentage of the cost of universities um, in Europe and in North America is the result of Baumol's cost disease. And there's not really much you can do about that unless you could deliver education, uh, say, more efficiently. But unfortunately, you can't because if education were delivered efficiently, it would not actually serve the value it serves for students, which is signaling. Milis, would you agree with that view? Um, are the differences in Europe compared to America? And if I add another question as well, I can even put that to you, Jason, as well. But to what extent will competition help to resolve these issues? I mean, you you would think after a while, even if even if what universities really do are are providing a, a signaling device for people, at the end of the day, especially when you begin to reach the volumes of money that are required now in order to get a university education, wouldn't there sort of be stronger competition with some old new universities or colleges that begin to compete in a different way? Yes, uh, thank you. Thanks for those questions. And uh, obviously, you know, having also studied in the U.S., actually I have two degrees from the U.S., uh, one from one from um, U.K., I, I actually agree with a lot of things that, uh, you know, basically most that Jason is saying. And obviously we don't just see the inflation in a tuition. We also can see, you know, uh, in parallel the great inflation, you know, some, you know, some, some, some faculty members because they are so focused on um, doing research, they, they only... At best, they pretend to teach, and uh, the teaching is not so important. But I, you know, from from my own perspective, and particularly here at the Estonian Business School, we we operate on a quite different principles in in the sense that we have grown out of um, uh, of uh, you know teaching teaching institution basically. So the teaching is our core business. So if you don't teach well. We cannot attract students, uh, and, and uh, we have to take, uh, you know, basically teaching quality very seriously. So the research is something that we have sort of gradually been building up, but uh, most of our revenues come from tuition, um, and uh, in that sense, uh, it gives us sort of a constant, um, you know, student feedback uh, as well. And um, obviously, I think 
to a certain extent that how far you can go. Um, um, and, and I think here the disciplines are different, depends on what type of university you're talking about. But uh, especially now, I think you know, in the last couple of years where we have had the COVID um, and, uh, restrictions, where a lot of universities have been uh, forced to teach online only, it has been even difficult maybe um, to do a hybrid courses uh, uh, now and then. But uh, a lot of online teaching, um, you see in a certain fields, you see a lot of competition. So you have this sort of uh, online universities, uh, different educational startups, and of course, they are not expanding into every area that universities are doing. But for instance, if you would want to study uh, you know, certain elementary computer science or coding or something like that, you have quite a lot of opportunities, I think, to acquire those skills. And uh, perhaps there is no need to um, uh, go to um, universities. And of course, at the same time, you know, also you know, relating back to what Jason was saying about the public subsidies, I think uh, we also see that you know, here um, in a way that uh, there is always this demand for more uh, public sector spending on education. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, I think the key question really here is that uh, if you increase the spending, you pay more for education, um, does it also improve the quality? Does it, does it make it better? Does it, you know, are, you, are you going to deliver it in a, in a better way? Um, and that's really not clear. I think uh, often it's just, uh, you know, as it was said before, it's just sort of expanding, spending more money, but uh, not necessarily with uh, significant improvement in the delivery of um, education. Thank you, Mili. So, Jason, competition, what role does competition play? And this is also comes from uh, a question that we have received here, which is basically, so what you're describing seems to be sort of a highly instable structure, uh, that is universities. So why hasn't this sector become uberized as in many other sectors that were relying on unstable incentive structures in the past? I do think the fact that they're socially subsidized helps reinforce them. So I'm not, I'm not saying we should eliminate all subsidies to education, but it does appear that, you know, in, in the United States, somewhere between eighth and 10th grade, that's when you stop getting a lot of human capital development and mostly seem to be getting signaling effects through education. So there's a much stronger argument for having public subsidization of, say, the first eight years of schooling than there is for the last eight. So that, that is part of it. And if we reduced funding, people, the, the competition of ever increasing signaling would be ramped down. They would still engage in it, but it would be I have a high school diploma or a secondary school diploma rather than a bachelor's degree or master's degree. But that said, I think you have to understand that the expense is the point. And that's why competition hasn't worked because education has always been free and it's been free for a long time. You can go to any school you want in North America for free. You want to go to Harvard? You just show up and go to the classes and sit in. Most of the time, the faculty won't even know you're not supposed to be there. And in the smaller classes where they might take attendance, you just walk in and say, listen, I've always had a thirst for 17th century Estonian avant-garde poetry. Can I please sit in your class? And they'll probably let you know they're not supposed to. You can watch videos online of MIT and Berkeley professors for free. You can get course materials from MIT for free. Education is free. Learning is free. What's expensive are credentials. That's what you have to pay for. So think about the competition Like when it comes to engagement rings. There are people that sell engagement rings for like $100. Like, you don't have to buy a diamond. We can give you a synthetic diamond and synthetic gold, and it's just as beautiful. It doesn't work because the expense is the point, right? If all of a sudden diamonds were incredibly cheap, if De Beers releases its monopoly and just floods the market with diamonds, what we'll do is we'll substitute a different kind of stone. Or if we don't substitute a stone, we'll do what we find is happening already in our culture, where in addition to giving an engagement ring and say, you don't just take someone out to a fancy dinner and give them a ring, you have to have an entire day's event where you go through all these beautiful and wonderful things and have like a flash dance and then like candles and then like, you know, a country singer comes and sings your favorite song and you do all this elaborate stuff to make the proposal because the expense is the point. So similarly, I think with education, it, because it's mostly about signaling, it has to be expensive. That's why competition doesn't chip it down. Again, if it were just about delivering education better, education is already free. Knowledge is already free. So that's the fact that it would have already been destroyed by competition if the competition were providing the same product, but it can't provide the same product. It has to be expensive, laborious, time-consuming, hoop-jumping in order to serve its function. 
Another question also directed to you, Jason, which is, so is your basic idea that we are over-educating people, that they are acquiring knowledge which simply isn't necessary in order to fulfill the jobs that they're going to take up in the future? And he also gives an example about when he was 15 years old and had job market practices during his obligatory schooling back then, he could do jobs that now require, requires a four years education degree in order to do that. So is, is there sort of a gradual process of over-education where we're gradually raising the barriers for entry into the labor market where you simply don't need to have this education for the actual task that you have at work, but you, you need to have the diploma in order to get in? Yeah, that's that's basically right. Uh, it used to be the kind of thing that the jobs that you would have gotten, say, in the 1950s with the equivalent of a secondary school diploma, now you require tertiary education. The same sorts of people tend to be getting those jobs. There is a little bit of like, you know, universities are pretty good at finding talented people from bad backgrounds and pulling them out of them, but you're just raising the bar. So an, an analogy that people like to use is imagine we're at a classical music concert where people don't really enjoy standing and I stand up. And I won't sit down. Now the people behind me have to stand up. Soon everybody stands up, but no one really has a better view. Now people might say, but isn't, isn't education supposed to be more about more than that? Isn't it about the value of the material that you encounter for its own sake? Isn't that also good? And I'm not a Philistine. I, I agree. I'm an infovore. I, I love learning for the sake of learning. I'm learning French right now. And I've been doing that for about two years for the heck of it. I mean, I, I actually am going to go to France this year, but I didn't expect to do that. I'm just doing it because I think languages are interesting. That's, that's it. So I'm that kind of person. But a good analogy would be, imagine that you take three people to go see Guernica in Madrid, right? Uh, the first person is blind. The second person is a disaffected teenager who doesn't pay attention. And the third person is a tiny baby. Now, the painting is beautiful and magnificent and has all this symbolic value, but those three people don't get anything out of it. And it wouldn't be worth spending $10,000 or $100,000 to present the painting to them, even though the painting is really valuable. I think that we actually measure what students are like. We find they're overwhelmingly like the blind person, the disaffected teenager that just wants to look at their phone, and the baby. We're exposing them to brilliant and wonderful things that have values in themselves, and they get very little from it. It's incredibly depressing for me to say that. I don't want that to be true, but that's what the evidence says. When I, and I, I as a you know, science, social scientist, am required to modulate and change my behavior in light of that evidence. And we as a society are required to think about when we're spending money, what are people actually getting from it? If, they, if the students are like that, then this argument for public subsidization of their education goes away. All right, Milis. If I can also say, uh, I mean, I think in many ways, it's also sort of a mental shortcut. I mean, if you're an employer and you have lots of people sort of impl- uh, applying for the jobs and uh, some, and I think in a way, you know, we go back to this sort of signaling that people who have uh, degrees, uh, it makes it a little bit like easier to select. Uh, you know, otherwise you have, you have to sort of start looking and sort of investigating their backgrounds and to understand, you know, where they stand and uh, and so on. So in that in that in that sense, I think it works as a sort of a shortcut or a mental shortcut for making uh, certain decisions. But obviously, um, I agree with Jason uh, that um, uh, you know a lot of uh, professions uh, that we have currently. Uh, maybe you don't necessarily need that type of sort of, uh, you know, very strict educational requirement. And uh, to some extent, it actually also applies to the universities. Uh, uh, for instance, here in, uh, uh, you know, because universities teach very different things and uh, not all all the things that, uh, you know, different colleges teach uh, require PhD, but we increasingly have seen that, you know, even if, for instance, here in Estonia, when you want to teach tourism, for instance, and in order to qualify as a lecturer, at the college that belongs to one of the um, large universities here, you actually have to have a PhD, right? So you can't even be a lecturer without the PhD. And I think that's, that has really gone into extreme in a way because it's, it's a very practical thing to teach and you would actually want to attract a lot of people um, uh, who have a practical experience. And it's very, like, uh, very unlikely that they will go to university and acquire a PhD in order to do that. And Milis. Business schools, are they different from universities at large? Can you make sort of a better proposition for the value of getting a business school education that isn't connected to you're going to raise your earnings in the future because you're going to be exposed to a network and you're going to create the signaling benefit for yourself? Is there an inherent value in a business school education as well? 
Uh, absolutely. I also have to emphasize that there are different types of business school. I, I'm at um, I'm a Estonian business school is what we could call sort of comprehensive business school. We have undergraduate degrees, master's degrees, and we also have a PhD program. So we actually a university, uh, only private university here in Estonia. And I think uh, particularly if we sort of think uh, from the point of view of sort of importance of interdisciplinarity, and we don't know. Uh, you know, you know what kind of uh, jobs and what kind of opportunities there are, and people maybe have certain sort of uncertainty. Uh, you know, what to study and what to specialize. I think uh, the business schools tend to be much more sort of interdisciplinary, and all the sort of uh, things that I emphasized before that uh, it's 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 really important. I think in this uh, environment to connect different parts, the different connect uh, professors with different disciplines, connect students with entrepreneurs, and, and so on. I think uh, in general, uh, my, my, my view is that business schools are able to do it better than, uh, uh, let's say, some other departments or disciplines. Would you agree, Jason? I mean, I've seen your contribution to the forthcoming book, and uh, um, you're making a case that business school, at least, are not worse than a liberal arts education is. But would you be prepared to say, sort of, go a little bit further than that and say that, well, perhaps business schools are delivering something more than perhaps other educations would do? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That, to summarize what I end up saying in that, people have a list of complaints, a litany of complaints about business school. And my reaction is, you're absolutely right about all of those. And they go, aha, liberal arts is better. And I go, nope, it's not. Uh, because what they end up doing is comparing an idealized, fictional account of what liberal arts should be to what business education actually is. I do think business schools have a few advantages. One is the fact that they're so tied into employers and the real world prevents them to some degree, I don't want to exaggerate this, from going off into just the complete bullshit worlds that tend to permeate the humanities, where they're just completely disconnected from reality, because all we do is like play word games with one another. I do think it keeps them grounded. I think the other thing business schools tend to do well on is there's more of a concern about practical experience and learning projects that require you to take an abstract idea and do something with it. And some people might complain, oh, why would you, why would you want to do that? But liberal arts educators should also do, do doing this. And the reason they should be doing it is because it turns out this thing called transfer of learning doesn't exist or exists for very few people. So the, the basic psychological premise of liberal arts education is if I teach you to think about mathematics in the abstract and to learn the value of languages in the abstract and to engage in philosophical reasoning and scientific reasoning and moral reasoning, this will develop all these kinds of background skills, which you will then use. And all these principles that you learn in all these classes, you will then use throughout your life. Empirically speaking, there's a hundred years or more of educational psychology testing this thousands of different ways. And what they find overwhelmingly is that people do not spontaneously engage in transfer of learning. Maybe one out of a hundred people does, and the, like college professors tend to do it. So the psychological premise upon which liberal arts education is grounded is false. We know it's false. We have overwhelming evidence that it's false. So what we all ought to be doing as educators then is instead of having people do these abstract things and then hoping that they'll apply it to the real world, if we want them to use a principle or a skill in a real world application, we need to be giving them assignments that require them to use it. So instead of transferring learning, they're actually practicing the use of that in their own, in the actual environment. Uh, business schools do more of that than liberal arts schools do. So for that reason, they're superior. Their educational model is closer to being grounded in reality than liberal arts uh, are. So even if you think the content of what liberal arts teach is more important than what business schools teach, and I think there's a pretty good argument for that. A lot of what they study is just bogus, it's nonsense. Um, nevertheless, the teaching method is better for students than uh, the liberal arts method. That said, someone's going to say, but ah, but aren't on average business students worse than liberal arts students when you measure these things? Yes, but that's a selection effect. It's not because of the content of the teaching. It's because who chooses to major in it. And... What about the role of external payers for business education? And of course, this is a question that comes from uh, from uh, the audience, and I think it's more directed towards MBA educations because that's something you usually enroll in a few years after you've started your working life. So it, is that something that he helps to keep educational institutions and university in check? The fact that some students are going to come there courtesy of their employers and they don't want to spend money on bullshit education. In a way, yeah, it, it prevents them from just teaching like 
utterly esoteric theories that have they're completely disconnected from reality um, because they want things that sound appropriate but we shouldn't also overstate what happens in mba teaching uh the, the dirty secret open secret of mba teaching is how do you teach an mba class oh it's easy you think about what you would have covered in an undergraduate class and you dumb it down and teach them that right so pretty much what gets covered in a typical mba program is a review dumbed down with less mathematics of what people would have covered in an undergraduate business education right that's and so mbas are overwhelmingly about the signaling effect they're not much human capital development at all but it is nevertheless true that employers are not going to say pay uh to have someone get a degree in like just i don't i don't want to like insult any particular field but just some absolutely insane thing that say only like you know, professors in comparative literature believe that is completely disconnected from reality. Yeah, I think uh, just very briefly, I think the main value of the MBA is building sort of social capital, social uh, networks. So it's not so much what's uh, what the instructor is uh, teaching in the in the classroom, but you basically sort of learning uh, learning from the others in in the class, sharing experiences, and uh, building a network uh, for the future. So I think in that sense, MBA, if you specifically ask about MBA and executive MBA, is still different degrees from, let's say, MA or MSc and uh, some other degrees. So thank you. Final question, because we are getting close to the end, but it's the, the same question to both of you. So what can be done in order to increase the quality of a university education? Is that the right question we should ask ourselves? Is it even meaningful to ask the question about it? But I'm I'm doing that on the presumption that, well, in the best of worlds, we wouldn't just be providing a signaling device to people who pay $250,000 in order to get a full education at Georgetown, but they would also acquire some knowledge while they're there and some knowledge that would last and would be helpful for future, basically that they build up a stock of human capital that also the economy can draw on. So what would be most important to do? If we start with you, Milis, and then over to you, Jason. Well, I think I can I can come back to uh, some of the points I made in, in, in the beginning that I uh, sort of emphasized this uh, sort of disconnects, uh, you know, we are supposed to be more connecting different types of people in order to disseminate and uh, improve the knowledge, but this is not uh, often happening. And um, particularly in the case of business schools, it seems obvious that uh, you, you need uh, stronger connections to the business communities uh, in one way or another. It doesn't mean that uh, you should start uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, delivering specific corporate messages or anything like that, but uh, it needs to be sort of connected more the diverse uh, business community with sort of different type of values, different uh, different businesses, and so on. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, Jason was talking a lot about uh, incentives. Uh, again, like um, from the point of view, for instance, improving business uh, education. And I think it's really key to have some type of maybe uh, rotation uh, that uh, you know people who, you know, on one hand, yes, it's it's uh, great to do great uh, academic research, but um, also try to see how it is uh, relevant um, and uh, and bring in uh, you know both um, you know have, have a sort of higher quality academics but also have uh, practitioners to uh, to work together so those are just some of the ideas obviously we could uh, do a separate session on that and uh, <laughs> this is something that we are sort of constantly thinking about uh, you know how to do things better thank you all right and you Jason do you have uh, a, a couple of things that we could do to uh, fix the system? I'm going to be pessimistic and be, say it's mostly hopeless. Um, and the reason is because uh, I, I have, in the Cracks in Every Tower book, I have a chapter about student teaching evaluations and why they're not valid. As a person who gets very high evaluations, by the way, so thank you for using them, but um, we shouldn't. Uh, and the problem is that actually measuring teaching effectiveness is extremely difficult and it violates student choice. Because in order to know, are you really delivering a good education, we have to control for all these different factors, including the quality of the students who select into your class and their pre-existing social capital and pre-existing knowledge and their propensity to learn. And in order to test that, this is why like the, the actual experiments that are done on learning are almost always done in military academies where they can force students to take a class with a particular professor because they don't have freedom. Um, and then we can actually measure the genuine impact of professors. That's what it takes to actually measure learning, and there doesn't seem to be a good mechanism to overcome that. 
Uh, so measuring learning is incredibly expensive and no one really knows how to do it. And as a result, I don't think that we're going to find any kind of cheap and effective mechanism, which means that we don't really have any kind of incentive to fix it. You know, in principle, I could say, well, imagine that we regulated universities and the content of what they taught and the quality of what they taught, the way that, say, governments try to regulate uh, automobile manufacturers or drug manufacturers to try to ensure quality. Uh, I think if you're a person who thinks that governments are very good at regulating, you should probably be in favor of increased government regulation of universities. If you're a person who's skeptical and think that these things tend to be captured or be ineffective, you should probably be skeptical of those as well. I tend to think that uh, when it comes to education, at least, that if we did have increased government regulation, it would be captured. Uh, those regulatory agencies would be captured by the universities themselves. Um, attempts to sort of force schools in, say, the United States to be better by proving that you can get people to pass a test haven't really worked. So I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic that we can really fix any of this stuff. Maybe if students sued schools for not learning anything, then they might, something might happen, but I don't think that will work either. So yeah, I, I guess I think it's hopeless. Sorry. <laughs> you know, I, as an educator, when I learned this, when I learned the un, un, unfortunate and pessimistic and terrible facts about what students learned, I changed how I taught and what sorts of assignments I gave. Um, but that's one person that's not going to do it by itself. So, oh, well. Well, you know, uh, uh, to end on a bad note is still to end on a note. So um, I think that's going to be the uh, the final comment from this session. Thank you so much, Jason and Milis, for taking the time for joining this conversation. I think it's been extraordinarily thought-provocative and enlightening. Let me, again, sort of plug your forthcoming book on business schools, and that's going to come out later this year. And if people are impatient and can't wait for good analysis about universities, I can recommend uh, Jason's book, which he wrote together with Philip Magnus, called Cracks in the Ivory Tower, The Moral Mess of Higher Education, which is very thought provocative and very revealing. Thank you also so much to all of you who have joined us on different platforms. Looking forward to see you again. (laughs) 